This is Justin Mason with the Mostly Green Life, chatting with a Whole Foods Market legacy, former co-CEO Walter Robb. From selling the store he started in Northern California to John Mackey in 1991 and rising to CEO, Walter was with Whole Foods for over 20 years and now is an active mentor and advisor to innovative food startups. Leadership, passion, and drive are just a few of the characteristics that's gotten Walter to where he is today. Something we all struggle with is whether to choose balance over fulfillment or money over both of those. Walter shares the path he chose to focus on and shares some projects he's really excited about right now. All right, well, welcome back to the Most Green Podcast. Today we have Walter Robb. Needs no introduction, but I'll introduce him anyway. Grew up in Whole Foods and had a long, illustrious career with Whole Foods, ending as co-CEO. And since then has left, and I'm excited to hear about all the things that you've been up to since then, because I'm sure we've got a lot of uh, really cool things coming out of the works. Um, But we'd love to just start talking about uh, your story and and, um, uh, your start at Whole Foods and how you ended up there. Okay, well, thanks. Good to be with you guys today. And um, here in a rainy day or sort of a rainy-like day in Austin, right? Yeah. Um, Which is a little unusual, but we'll take it. You know, you're talking to basically a natural food guy who started in the uh, mid to late 70s, kind of being drawn in with this idea. Remember that the the modern food system started in World War II and uh, that the the birth of frozen food and processed food. And so when my generation came along, the idea was that we were going to revolutionize food and go back to whole food with a small W. Right. I really got turned. Whole Foods, you had, you actually had your I had my own store, which I started in 77. Yep. And, um, but it was really the reading Wendell Berry's book, Unsettling of America, Francis Morlopay, Diet for a Small Planet. Uh, those sorts of books that got me just excited. And then in the family, we started making our own bread, which was an unusual thing, grinding our own flour. And so this, the idea came after trying law school for a week, farming for six months, and a couple other things, I said, I'm going to start a natural food store. So <laughs> I did so with a $10,000 loan from my stepfather, who just gave it to me with no papers. And uh, spent three grand on inventory and then the rest and then built a store and opened it up called Mountain Marketplace. And then ran that for 10 years, sold it and moved back into the Bay Area, where I started a second store, which was uh, turned out to be the one I sold to John in 1991, which was store number 12 for Whole Foods. This was uh, pretty public. So we were just 12 stores at that point. And um, so it's really, I think, just uh, was a life choice around to want to a, do something that really um, felt right and felt impactful and purposeful. I knew I didn't want to you know, sell elevators or something. Not that that's not for somebody else, but for me it wasn't. And then I think also that uh, just being really in, in feeling like you were doing something that mattered, but also something that just really felt right. And so we built the, the whole natural food industry kind of unfolded from that place to the present day. And now you know... You see where it is, which is pretty mainstream. Yeah. This idea that food actually affects your health is pretty widely accepted now. Right. Many more people are accepting it nowadays. For sure. (laughs) And that was long before organic certification. So at the time, how did you know that, you know, some food was going the wrong direction and that you wanted to go a different one? Well, I think every generation puts to looks to put its mark on uh, society and and makes its changes. I think we're seeing that now with the the pivot from um, from the boomers to the millennials and the and the zers. 
Um, but I think in our case, it was a response or reaction or decision to go to Whole Foods from the highly processed foods and the frozen foods, which had grown out of the since the 40s. I mean, prior to World War II, pretty much everyone grew their own food and ate their own food. And they had that sort of value system. Victory Gardens, not not was standing in World War II. After World War II, it was all about moving to the suburbs and you know frozen food and modern supermarkets and, and all that sort of thing. And so I think our generation came along and said, hey, let's go back, let's, let's do this thing called natural food, which is, and so that's really what we attempted to do uh, as, as a generation, I think. And I think that's, now we're at, a, we're at a different pivot point now with a new generation of consumers. We have, you know, we have boomers, we have extras, we have millennials and we have Z. We have four generations in market. But the pivot has definitely been to the millennials and the Zers who have a new mission, which is to build on kind of the foundation that Whole Foods has built to, to usher in a new era of food and, and around food systems, which really need transformation. And why that's so important is because food pretty much touches every aspect of human existence from climate to your personal health. And so that's why it's a really key thing to transform uh, the work that we started and did at Whole Foods now needs to continue with a new generation of entrepreneurs like yourself, Mason. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And a funny point, chemical fertilizers weren't even invented until the 40s. Correct. Right? That's yeah. right. They, they actually, with the, the war agents, the the, thing, the the materials that were used in the in the prosecution of World War II is were tra- what were transformed into pesticides and fertilizers. That's really what gave birth to modern production agriculture, which is what we see today. But what happened with our generation is a, a new system of natural organic uh, grew up alongside and we have now as two parallel systems of production. I mean, the organic industry alone is, is close to $70 billion. But to your point, the first organic, the first days of the business, there wasn't a, an organic seal like you see today. That became uh, as a result, but we had the first organic certification in California in 1990. The federal seal was approved in 2000. It took a number of years to actually do the rulemaking to create it. But somewhere in there, the the fact that there was rules around what an organic seal stood for, it actually just, the market took off. And so that's where we're now at 70 billion in organic sales, which is pretty, pretty good considering the overall grocery industry in the United States is somewhere south of 1 trillion. So maybe in the you know, maybe 900 billion or something like that. Yeah. yeah, bringing transparency to consumers who didn't know if they were eating vegetables that were grown organically or that had pesticides on them to help them grow. Right. So, I think the, 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 the whole thing with the seal was actually to take a third-party verification and put a standard in place that said, if you buy this seal, you're getting these standards, you're getting this sort of guarantee that somebody said it's been grown this way. I think that was... It wasn't just the transparency, it was the verification, it was the fact the government was standing behind it as an option for customers that really unlocked the market potential. Right. So how does Whole Foods go about setting their high quality standards for foods? Well, it really began with the initial standard, which was no additives, preservers, colors, nothing. Anything in the four walls is not going to have those sorts of things. And from there, it pretty much evolved to the point now where there's a standard in each and every area of the store that was done through a process over the years. Any company's purpose continues to evolve. Any purpose, reason for being as they can see more the further they get down the road. And so there's a full set of standards up on the website now that really articulate the set of standards in each and area, vegetables, food service, you know, meat, seafood, and so forth that are, the standards really are specific to that individual thing. And the issues in seafood, which have to do with overfishing, are different than the issues in meat, which have to do with the carbon intensity or the use of gra- the use of, uh, of uh, plant-based to, to produce one pound of meat, which, you know, versus for the healthcare, which is what's going on in your skin or in your body. Yeah. The set of issues are slightly different. So the standards just keep evolving. And I think 
this new generation, which includes you two guys, will, of course, have to push those further. And that looks to me to be around uh, both sustainability, whether it's packaging, whether it's ESG, whether it's your impact on the environment, or really around wellness and health. I mean, I think the younger generation really is saying, show me that this is healthier for me, this is better for me, this makes sense to do. And I think these standards will continue to evolve as more information becomes available. Yeah. And it, I'm sure as um, you know, leading the organization in the last you know 10 or 20 years, there's been a lot of uh, call it, whether it's compromise or, uh, you know, assaults on standards. What has it been through that? Like, how did you stay centered and how did you figure out where you wanted the company to be and then negotiate that with the company? Well, I mean, it's business is a team sport and we were definitely a team at Whole Foods, a team of five for 10 years. So it's together before we added a couple more members. But, uh, <laughs> I think that it was, you know, Lincoln said best about leadership. It's kind of a combination of a, you lead your constituents and you serve your constituents. And so I think in many cases you are saying, all right, uh, this is the vision. This is the hill we're going to take as a leader. And then on the other hand, you're also listening to the constituents, which are the customers and the team members sort of saying, this is where we think you need to go. And I think we realized as we got going that there was just how much market room there was, how much possibility, but it's 10 years that we flew under the radar really before we burst on the scene in the 90s and people began to really know who we were. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think it's a, you, you find the balance there. I think the fact that we had a pretty clear North Star around uh, serving the highest quality natural organic foods, uh, bringing the healthiest foods to the market, trying to do it with love and respect. We had a North Star that pretty much guided us and that gave us a lot of room to just keep going and we kept going and it just kept opening up and opening up and opening up. And so mm, it was a combination. There was times where we would say, for example, as of Earth Day in a certain year, we're going to stop selling red-rated fish. We're going to—we're just not going to support fish that are not being sustainably uh, fished. On the other hand, there was times, say, when the GMO issue hit, where the team members were just saying, "Hey, this is out there. You guys are straddling the fence. We expect more out of you. We expect you to take a position and tell us or guide us as to what you're—you know—we we should stand for as a company." Or the customers would say. What, what do you guys think on this? So we ended up being somewhat of a standard bearer. People looked to us, even though we had maybe 3% market share, we had much more mind share. And I think people looked to us for some sort of guidance on how to make their decisions. So I think, I think the growth path for us was a combination of both A, leading and just kept pushing against the mission. We could see the opening, we could see the differentiation, and we kept going for it, building bigger stores in more locations and growing quickly. Uh, at the same time as really being trying to be responsive to our team members and our customers who were who were sensitive. And and I remember particularly during the downturn in 07, 08, when uh, the economy crashed, we had big ideas that were going on. And we were, I remember going on a walk for John and John said, well, we're going to be bigger than Safeway and um, we're going to have more stores. Do you realize how fast we're growing? And I think healthy ambition, but what the what the da the downturn revealed is that we had strayed to some extent from our real purpose in the marketplace, which was not to be the biggest, but was to be the best. And the team members made it very clear to us during that time that cause we did 360 morale surveys, we did twice a year, we did full cultural surveys, we did made a real effort to you know stay touched in with the team members and what they were thinking and how they were feeling, because that was the secret sauce of Whole Foods. But in that situation, they really guided us back to kind of reclaiming who we were in the marketplace, which was, we're not going to be the biggest supermarket. We're going to be the best supermarket, have the highest quality foods. Our role in the marketplace is to bring that level of quality up and to raise the issues around that, to race to the top, not some sort of race to the bottom. And I think 
I remember distinctly feeling like we were being guided by our team members to to remember who we were. They were feeling we were out of sorts. So I think the the impetus comes from both directions, and I think your successful leader blends them both. Yeah. Yeah. You also end up running around with a target on your back because if you're setting the standards, then everyone both is looking to you for that leadership. And then I feel like you, you get a lot of criticism for that as well. Going back to your path. So you had one store and you became a store team lead. And then it looks like you were immediately after regional president. Was that just John seeing values alignment and such? Or how did that come about yeah when the store and then and then the president of the norcal region which is we only had two regions at that time we had we had the southwest here in austin and we had the the norcal region and then um after that and asked to come and be the chief operating officer or evp of ops or i can't remember which came first but you know evp of ops and chief operating officer and then from there adding the president title co-president title with mm -hmm. ac and then from there to co-CEO. So it was uh, once I came to Austin uh, in that role, it was a progression from there. But, you know, over the the entire company, which we grew from two regions to 12 regions over that time. So at the time we sold Amazon and the summer of 17, we were north of 16 billion in sales. Yeah, it's an incredible journey. You left shortly after Amazon purchased the company? Or? Yeah, actually, I was on the board. And uh, after the acquisition, of course, we were no longer a public company. So we, so the board dissolved, and, and that's when I left at that time, which was September of 17. Okay, so you had stepped aside as co-CEO before? That was at uh, January of 17. Oh, okay. So pretty, pretty close mm -hmm. around. Talk a little bit about what happens right after you leave an organization that you've been with for so long? Well, I should ask you that question. But, um, <laughs> we can ask that right back. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of levels to answer that question. You're talking about leaving an organization. For me, honestly, this was my life. There really was no separation between my work and my life. I was doing exactly what I felt called to do. And I, I gave it everything, all my heart and uh, all my soul and all my sweat and all my spirit. And I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, it was the gift of a lifetime to, to be part of that group that did that work. And every day I'd get up and think about nothing else. And so I would say, you know, from that I learned to kind of in life, you look for fulfillment, not really balance. I, I, I kind of threw balance to the wind and so I'm just, this is so, so great. And you could argue that I had other parts of my life, maybe I didn't do them as well, but I did. So as a result, I think it was a pretty good hit when I when I stepped out because it wasn't that people didn't still take my calls or still want to meet or it was just that so much of me was wrapped up in in that. And, and so it took a bit for me to really kind of adjust to um, not. And the question really is, what's out there that's next that's, that's as fulfilling? And the answer is, I don't have another 30 years to do a runway like that. I'm just, I'm not your age, I'm older. And so, I mean, I'll be 68 this November. So, <laughs> so I don't have another 30 years. I may have another 30 years to live, but I don't have another 30 years to work at that pace. I mean, honestly, do you understand how fast we grew? And how, we went from two states to 44 states. We was traveling around, you know, every week. A new area as we were expanding and expanding and expanding. So you adjust by, um, you know, really recognizing, appreciating the, the gift of what the work was and then also trying to find your way to something that where you can continue on uh, with the same things that you believe in, the values, and put them to work. And for me, that was trying to be a mentor and advisor to uh, younger leaders who were facing some of the same questions we did around how do you grow a company with some sort of values or purpose, not just, you know, grow to grow. And 
I really enjoy that, including with you, Mason. Yeah, yeah. Time together, talking about things. Walter and, was an advisor and investor in CC's Vegico. Yeah. So, um, but I think it's more that it was more just the the time in terms of helping you face the challenges the market marketplace was presenting. And so I've, I've chosen to do it through investing and advising, advising first for me, I would, I, I don't really do it, you know, just to invest. I do it more for the advisor and the relationship and something I'm interested in. And then also I think I'm serving on some boards. So in a situation, a couple of them, I'm in the kind of exec chair role where I'm sort of alongside. Um, and that is the next best thing to actually running a company, which, which turns out it takes a whole lot of work to run a company. I mean, it just takes <laughs> everything to do that. And so I'm not sure you know that, but I think it, there's an adjustment, and you recognize that there is a you that's apart from the role that you're playing. You know, there's more to you than just being a CEO or co-CEO. Um, it's it's a hard thing to see when you're in it, but it's easier thing to see that. You know, I think for any CEO to recognize that there there's a person there that you're you're not defined by the role that you're in, and, and you kind of kind of go discover that afterwards and sort of see where you want to go with that. For me, I'm. I'm a purpose-driven person, purpose-driven leader, and I, I want to associate with things that have some sort of impact on the world. And so that's what I've been seeking and that's what I've been working on. Cool. With being a mentor on different boards, can you share with us some cool projects that you're currently working on? Yeah, sure. So there's a company, uh, one company called Hungry, which is a very interesting digitally native chef-centered community-based platform for catering. And essentially what they do is if you think about a catering order, you go on the platform and you're, you have access in each community. There's one here in Austin to local chefs who, who use the platform to present their different uh, food options or cuisines available. So when you're sitting, if you're running an office, say, and you want to order, you have a choice and, and you access a partnering with these different chefs who actually come and set up the food. Hungry basically provides the platform, the connection, uh, and even the logistics if you need it. You can imagine their time during COVID with offices, they pivoted into 80% of their business last year was in businesses they weren't even in before, like <laughs> like actually uh, live events or, you know, or they'd come or into food logistics. They end up serving a million meals a week in New York City using their logistics platform. So mm -hmm. wow. um, the real, really great entrepreneur named Jeff Grass, that's the CEO. But, you know, I think trying to... Um, help him and think through and be there to support him and use connections and contacts to help him. And they set up an office in East Austin. And so that, that's an example of a company that's doing some very interesting things, but is incorporating kind of the modern tools and platforms that are available that weren't there when we started out uh, into their offer. And is and it's got the values-based approach in terms of including the chefs. Um, it's a business model that supports the chefs and the company. So it's inclusive and it's also really uh, diverse in terms of the food that's available to you as a customer and you you make the selection on which food you want and you can move around so i think that's kind of a good example yeah. another one is um appeal sciences a young entrepreneur named james rogers who got to know and asked me if i would come in and i, I worked started out working with him as an advisor and then he asked me to join his board but essentially what he's done is figure out a technology to he's a material scientist who takes from food waste or parts of the uh, he takes the lipids out and, and then makes a powder, which he then reliquifies to apply to fruits and vegetables to extend their shelf life from two to six weeks. So it's pretty amazing. He's using food to preserve food. So what I have observed is, is this whole new generation of entrepreneurs that are doing just simply amazing things to build the new world of food that, you know, whether it's mushrooms, whether it's algae, whether it's uh, cell-based meat, whether it's cell-based oil for that matter. There's an entrepreneur in Austin that's doing cell-based oil, whether it's... Uh, Really? Justin Mars at uh, Kettle and Fire that's starting a non-alcoholic company called Surely. I mean, there's just this activity and realization that it's a new time in food. It's a new time. It's a new generation. 
there's new things happening and um, the entrepreneurs are stepping up to create these companies. And so I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be in a position where people come and check in and ask and see. And so I have a, I have a good chance to look at all the activity. Fun. Well, you mentioned being uh, 68, you look like a spring chicken. What are your... <laughs> I'm not sure what that looks like. What does that look like? <laughs> Scrawny and... Uh... No, spring chickens are fluffy okay. and, and pretty. Okay. <laughs> Thank I you. had chickens growing up, so I know all, all about chickens. Do you have any kind of health habits or things that... Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a whole foods guy. I mean, I started in the mid-70s. I'm a natural food guy. By... Literally whole foods, not, <laughs> not the sm- retailer the per small se. Whole, I mean, I'm a natural... <laughs> I started out in what was called the natural food industry. Before that, it was called the health food industry because it started in the 50s, but that wasn't really a term that stuck, but it's still around. But it's, the natural food industry was kind of more conveying this idea of food without junk in it um, or using the whole food wherever possible. So, you know, I'm, I am happiest eating a, a natural food diet, a very simple natural food, whole foods diet, plant-based diet. Um, that's at the kind of core of it. And I think you know, those, my values kind of extend from there. But my early experience as an entrepreneur, when I had my own store for, for 10 years, the experiences I had there in the 10 years building and from the ground up that store have really informed my values and uh, i think we're helped to show up and shape the whole foods culture um as a result of those experiences so and is that store still around it is really yeah it's uh, very it's cool. fourth owner i think now my goodness but it is still there <laughs> when was the last time you went back to it oh it's been five years now now it's still there it's a 1500 square feet something like that it started out a thousand and we added a little bit more so at the, cool. in the county seat mm-hmm. <laughs> We'll have to go visit that. That's a long way from here. Well, right. We like California, though. So, yeah. (laughs) Um, I wanted to go back to a quote. I think you were saying you don't live for happiness, you live for fulfillment. What was that quote? I think you strive for fulfillment, uh, not for balance. I think balance is a bit bit of an illusion. There's this idea that you can be uh, at business at that level and be in balance. Um, It's thrown around a lot. I think it's awful. It's just kind of an illusion. Yeah. I think more what you want to do is recognize when you, like for example, recognize when you're burned out and you you stop and take a day. And for me, I would go to the beach, turn off my phone. I would just, that would fill my tank back up. Because if your tank's not full up, you can't walk with team members and give to them in the way that you want to or the way that I want to. I'm I'm a heart leader. Yeah. I'm not a head leader. I'm a heart leader. And to give to people, you have to have your own tank full to be able to do that. And so, or if you have time with your, any time with your kids, then you just make that time. But this sort of idea that you're going to allocate it percentages or something, because <laughs> you're always going to feel like you're coming up short anyway. So yeah. I think if you're really working towards something that really matters to you, that that's going to rub off on people. They're going to see that. They're going to remember that. And anyways, that's kind of where I came to in that. And yeah. I, I do admit there may have been other than Whole Foods and my kids, I may have left out some other areas of my life. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, the richness of, of the journey was amazing. Yeah. I feel like at times of my life, neglect more of things that you want, but you, you end up really digging into particular areas. And my first company, Greenlang, you know, I just loved it so much and everything that we were doing. And so I went to advisors and was like, I think I'm spending too much time on my company. There should be, I should be doing other things. And one advisor here in town, uh, Bajoy Goswami, he's, he's kind of a guru in town. He's like, are you enjoying what you're doing? I was like, yeah, absolutely loving it. We're helping change food systems. He's like, well, then don't worry about balance. <laughs> oh, he said that. Yeah. 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 I think the operative word is fulfillment. Yeah. You know, I think the basically the key to a life, are you finding your passion and pursuing it? working hard, being kind to people and telling the truth. Yeah. 
Um, so you have always been a road warrior. Did COVID ground you for a while or did you, were you able to stay <laughs> moving well, around? Well, as you know, I, I live downtown. And so, I mean, it was stunning when COVID first, I was the first, one of the first people to get COVID in Austin. I got it on March 10th of 2020, I guess. I got it, yeah. I think, going through the Chicago airport, actually. Wow. Uh, and I was one of the first ones to get it here. And uh, I got it bad. And I ended up three nights in the hospital, the hospital too. Yeah. So, but I remember looking out at the downtown Austin, it was dead. I mean, like for the first three or four months, no one went outside really. I mean, do you remember that? I was yeah. just completely shut down. So no, I didn't really travel for a year. And even now I, I you know, I realized with the break that I, uh, I did so much travel. I don't know how to tell you how much travel I did that I don't really enjoy it in the same way that I used to. And you know, no. which city am I in now? I'm walking down the hotel hall. What, <laughs> where am I again? What am I doing? Like a, you get to the place where you're doing so much of it and it was what was necessary. But now uh, I try to be more selective on, mm -hmm. on that. And when do I really need to do it? And of course you can always fly zoom airlines, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> go around. But I think in the end, there are some things that need to be done face to face and that have to be done by having a personal relationship. So I think you just need to sort out, maybe it's the first and the last meeting, or I always felt as, as a president chief operating officer, there's no way I can do that job if I, I didn't understand on the ground from the regional president's perspective, what the competition looked like, what they were dealing with, and who is their leaders or had to be there and spend time with them yeah. to be effective in my role. So I think it also depends on kind of what your what your roles and responsibilities are, but it's some travel necessary, but I think, I think we all realize coming out of this, we can do less and be just fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And did you come out of it with any epiphanies about what you wanted out of life and your pace or anything, anything changed from COVID? You know, it's interesting because I just hosted, uh, along with Sarah Eisen, from a friend from CNBC, um, we hosted a dinner and Brent Montgomery from Wheelhouse, we hosted a dinner for 16 CEOs in New York City maybe two months ago and, and was really around the zeitgeist of the times, which is kind of your question. And w what I heard and what I've experienced is one, a realization that we are made to be with one another. And when we don't, ha when that's not happening, it feel it feels less than, you know, you feel like you're missing the full promise and gift of humanity. Second of all, I think it cracked us all a little open to be more tolerant and more appreciative of others, whether it's the grocery store worker who's, who's ringing you up or whether it's the views of a younger generation and how they're seeing things. A lot of the CEOs referenced the fact that they heard the, genera the younger generation in their company more clearly than they'd heard them before in terms of what they needed with respect to time at home, difference childcare, uh, desire for hybrid disease, you know, and work. I mean, there was a kind of, there's kind of an opening that's been created around those sorts of things. I also think that it revealed very clearly disparities that have been inherent in the situation for a long time around uh, education, race, equity, other areas, food, food system, actually, given that it's 50% food service and 50% retail and near the twain shall meet as we saw during the COVID. So it opened up the opportunity to see a lot of those things a lot more clearly in terms of work that needs to be done and lays ahead mm -hmm. for companies and for society. Uh, some of that's playing out in DC right now since we're such a split country and we just can't seem to get it together to sort of find a way forward, which is what we need to do. Yeah, I mean, I think the realizations are really one, first of all, how much I'm a people person and I, how much I treasure and appreciate being with people and how much that's a the core part of any business for me is those relationships that you build. I think second of all is this idea that there's more than one point of view than just yours as CEO and that you got to really realize how important it is in today's world to really to open yourself up, open the aperture up to let those all in and, and 
and filter them and think through them and and honor them really in in creating kind of the way forward which is what you should do as a senior leader anyways you should start making room for the younger leaders through making them feel safe to share their points of view and i think third is is recognizing once again that we those of us are lucky enough to have been at this point to realize there's many others that are not and and that it what sort of society do we really want to have in this and 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 what are we going to do about it whether it's climate and the impact there or whether it's uh food system uh, inaccessibility in certain parts of the country, the, the underserved areas, whether it's any area that you want to pick, there's work to be done to kind of create a more perfect union, which was, of course, what Lincoln said, right? So mm-hmm. uh, we've got work to do. Yeah. One of the topics I'm mostly agreeing that we're trying to cover is personal sustainability and the, our journey to be more sustainable. I'm guessing your diet is about as sustainable as it gets. Are there any other areas of your life that you're trying to work on to be a little bit more environmentally conscious? I think uh, the diet is right at the center of it because I think that does it does touch everything. And so it, besides feeling better, um, you feel great about the choices you're making in terms of their their footprint and their impact. There's a website now, hivebrands.com, that will let you actually shop and see your carbon footprint from your purchases. So I mean, that's all coming in terms of yeah. information. Uh, you know, obviously exercise. I really enjoy walking town lake. You know, you can do 10, 12 miles out there and put up a pretty good sweat and feel really good and it's beautiful. So I really enjoy that. I tend to do a comp because of my knees are a little bit long on the tooth now. I, I like to combine cardio and, and weights with, you know, with exercise with uh, those two combinations are really good for me. So I probably should do more meditation and those sorts of things, but um, <laughs> I haven't really done that as much. Maybe just quiet time. And I think in terms of... Uh, have you ever had a meditative practice or is it... I had 20 years ago, but I have not picked it back up, you know, more just quiet time to sit, to look inside. But actual meditative practice, I'm not, I'm not uh, currently doing anything, but I have had. Yeah. And I think um, in terms of the planet overall, I and mean, there's a tendency sometimes I think to think that you got to, if you work out there on some big thing, and I think really if you stay come from the inside out, start with yourself and work on that, work on those relationships, work on building more sustainability in your own community. I think that's uh, that's kind of my path has been to try to contribute. So yesterday I taught a guest class at UT Law School, you know, and I teach at the business school. And I think, you know, where can you give back? Where can you help out? Where can you build a connection? That is a, it's just as important a type part of the environment yeah. of what we need to build, as well as, you know, obviously the car that you drive or the food that you buy or the equipment that you choose or um, the companies that you support. Yeah, that's a perfect ad for mostlygreen.life because we we talk about health and wellness being an incredibly crucial part of the environment. You have to have a, a healthy body. There's a quote, you know, a person with this health has a thousand dreams. A person without it only has one dream. Yeah. And so it starts from within. And then it also reminded me of this quote that the only, you can't, change other people the only way you can help change the world is contribute change to the world and then you know help people follow that yeah it does remind me of kind of made this a good time to bring up i do think that we are at a major inflection point here where our understanding of health and wellness um, has been up to this point really you know we'll add this to our smoothie or we'll add this but really there's a sort of view that you go a certain number of years and then you start to decline and you maybe go on a home and drool you know <laughs> and then you kind of go downhill and out right and i think what you see now is people really pivoting, particularly younger people, to a, a whole new 
looking at the world through the lens of health and wellness, which is to say, no, I don't want that. I want to really optimize my life. I want to optimize my time. I want to, in every way. Mm-hmm. And so this pivot of seeing um, health and wellness not as the absence of disease, but the presence of vitality is going to take shape in terms of uh, the next three to five years as food and medicine join together and people realize just how powerful food is as, as a healing agent to reverse disease very quickly as people realize that they are going to want to make choices that um, whether it's exercise choices or whatever choices they make, because there are sort of five parts of lifestyle medicine, right? It does include sleep, uh, meditation, spiritual, physical, et cetera, et cetera. All those five components of, of a healthy lifestyle have to be touched. But I think this fundamental underlying thing is this pivot to a kind of a new lens of health and wellness that people are going to look at their life through that in a way that's very different than the generation before. Yeah. And there's a book called uh, Lifespan that uh, puts forth the point that, you know, we talk about health being nurturing our bodies and avoiding stress. But when you look at the biology of our bodies, you have to actually stress out your body as well. Uh, One of the things that we've kind of taken to is cold plunges. Have you ever done a cold plunge? I have done those and it does shock your body, but one of the other ones that's out there is intermittent fasting, this idea that actually if you, and with our understanding of epigenetics now, actually, if you do stress your body in that way, it kicks in the longevity genes. So Mm -hmm. um, that's the sort of thinking behind, you know, restricted calorie diets or intermittent Mm -hmm. fasting is actually kicks in your body's natural reaction to... Yeah, uh, autophagy and all the things that, that help clean out the body. So do you practice intermittent fasting? I do. I mean, I wouldn't say... I'm a poster child for that, but I would say that I have become a a lot more, I'm a very careful eater. And number second of all, I've eat, I eat a lot less. Mm -hmm. So I'm fine with, you know, before I had a plate, I would just eat it. Now I'm fine if it's half there and I try not to waste food. But if, if, um, if I'm finished, I'll just push it aside. Right. Cause calorie restriction is also something that Lifespan speaks about in their book too, beyond just intermittent fasting. Yeah. Well, that, it, a calorie restriction sounds like, you know, technical or something. It I'm does. just saying <laughs> is that you, you can eat less, you can, when you're full or, you know, close to being full, you can just stop. You don't have to finish the plate. You don't have to do yeah. that stuff, right? And so calorie restriction implies sort of that you're going to go on some sort of pen, penalty box. And <laughs> it isn't really a penalty box actually, because as you make that adjustment, you start to feel better and better and and you just realize that's that's just part of the discipline of uh, of living a healthy life, and it mm-hmm. feels good. Yeah, and really separating nutrition from calories, I think, is, right. is a recent thing right. in that calorie restriction. You do you should eat more nutritious food if you're going to restrict your calories. But at the end of the day, we don't need that many calories. What our bodies are hungry for is nutrition most of the time. Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And whole foods provides that. Whole foods, I mean, whole foods with a small W, again, are, yeah. are simply, you realize we've really dis, we've discovered less than 1% of the, of, of the compounds that are in the plant kingdom. Yeah. Um, and so we really have, uh, we, we, you know, we, while there's a lot of folks fussing around with the DNA and trying to create new things, there's just so much richness in what's already exists that, and there are companies that are now un, un, unpacking that and discovering that and bringing it forward. We have a whole future where, you know, food is going to be linked directly to certain disease states and the foods that have the compounds that work against that, they're going to be linked and medicine's going to be practiced in that way through the use of food. So it's, it's pretty remarkable. Nature is pretty remarkable. And it's not just the compounds, it's also the adjacencies or the things that are around it that complement it. It's such a complex system yeah. as they're discovering on a cellular level or on a microbe level. 
all these things are going to come forward and we realize which which kind of goes back to the basis of the whole food movement which is the uh, appreciation for reverence for nature yeah. and and the magic of nature and so i think you know what we try to do at whole foods market was always to kind of work with nature and work with what you can learn from the natural world as opposed to this idea that kind of came out of world war ii that man needs to dominate nature right that right. somehow that that's a better outcome so i obviously am on the camp of reverence for nature and um, i think that the science and technology tools that are coming now will help unlock you know the there's so much there that we can use to do so much good. I think that will be a really exciting development. Yeah. Fanning on a point that you mentioned, not only do we only know 1% of the plant kingdom, but the act actually the nutrition and the foods that we eat, we've only identified, and this is you know probably 10 years ago, but I saw something that we'd only identified 40 to 50 actual useful compounds in the apple. And it was like, well, how many do you think they are? And there's like probably thousands. <laughs> Yeah, I was yeah. going to ask to go back to that stat. We've only discovered 1%. Yeah. yeah That's incredible. Amazing. There's so much <laughs> that we less, don't know. less than 1%. Less than 1%. Yeah. yeah. There's a company called Bright Seed. Check it out. Bright Seed, uh, for your listeners, it's a, uh, they've created a forager, which is their discovery platform, essentially set up to um, do the work around building a data library of all these compounds that they're discovering in food. There's another interesting company called Kingdom. Um, which is essentially studied fermented foods, which has been around as long as humans have been. Uh, it was a natural way of preserving food. Mm -hmm. And they've gone and created a data library of all the microbes that are in fermented foods like kimchi or anything like that. And they've started to connect the dots between these microbes and complementary microbes and how they can then improve flavor of products or help their products. And so there's, yeah. it's all coming. And make the um, nutrients bioavailable. When they're fermented, there's lots of nutrients that end up locked up. But once they're in the microbe and they get into our gut, then they become available too. It's really mm -hmm. amazing. Fascinating. This is all part of new food. So, you know, it's not for this grocer to do because this grocer has done his time in the apron. But there's going to be a new grocer who's going to be, you know, bringing these things forward and new entrepreneurs that are going to create the companies to do it. And I'm excited to see the how retailing, which is, of course, now multi-channel, will be able to communicate and share these things and how that point of view will develop. And even at Whole Foods, they're going to have to keep pushing their standards to sort of help the customer make their way through these different set of choices that are going to become available. Mm -hmm. And help them understand what it all means. Well, and take, and take a stand on it. In other right. words, this, yes, this, no, or here's a boundary or something you might want to think of. People look to Whole Foods to kind of provide some guidance on that because it's pretty confusing out there. I mean, there's 35 or six diets which one are you supposed to do? Which one is right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the answer, of course, is you know your body will tell you what's right for you, but there's a lot of confusion out there about it. And there isn't real clear linkage between medicine and your healthcare and food right now. There's not. There's no real true linkage that anyone you know could point to. There's nutraceuticals and functional foods, but it's, it's, there's a big gap there that, that needs to be closed and will be closed in the next period of time. Right. Two companies that we're excited about. One, uh, Maryfield, your old friend Joe Dixon, is creating an, an app to help people decide like which foods are good. That's right. Joe's a great gonna, guy. He's yeah. a super guy. So it should be a great app. And then uh, there's another one called Finch that we're collaborating with that does sustainability reviews, but science-backed for most of it's non-food, but personal care items and things that you get in the store, consumer goods. So hmm. uh, we're excited for companies like this to come on and help people understand like what to do and what not to do. Because the people trying to make money out there all, there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation. There is. There's a lot of information and people, I mean, the general consumer is con 
just confused. I mean, what should I eat? You know, the old Seinfeld joke, right? You know, well, you look pretty good. What do you eat? I think I'll eat that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like you still live a very tight schedule. We're very excited and happy and honored that you came on the show with us. And anything else, any other cool tidbits or something that you're, what's like, what's got you excited right now in life? Yeah. Well, spending time with you two guys and seeing what you're up to is cool. And I appreciate the invite and uh, to be part of your series here. And Mason, all, all your uh, good work at CC's and everything and the uh, things we got to share there. But look, I think the um, the future, there's always, you're either a half full or half empty sort of person, right? I think you're one way or the other. I'm always, I'm always excited to meet new people, have new experiences, put, connect new dots. And it seems like if you're open that way, those things start to happen. They just, they just keep happening. And I think that, um, I don't know exactly what lies ahead other than my grandkids, which are fantastic. I got six of them now, but, uh, you know, I remain incredibly, um, one of my lifelong, one of my values is lifelong learning. And, uh, um, I think, you know, staying open and humble to realizing there's so much more to learn and so many more people you can meet and, so many more things to go. I mean, that has got me, I mean, I get up, I get excited because every day I make a new connection or a new dot or a new thing. And I think that's what makes life so interesting. You know? Yeah, amazing. Well, I was pretty nervous for that one. Same in, here. <laughs> in our industry, he's quite a celebrity and he's also quite a presence, isn't he? Definitely. Yeah, I was nervous enough to get started and somehow my show notes disappeared and <laughs> oh, no. I didn't want to stop recording. So folks, I completely winged it. I kind of realized that we weren't going off of what we had discussed in a bit, in a way. <laughs> yeah, you can say that again <laughs> or just in a way. <laughs> um, so that was not my best work, but we still got some really awesome tips and info from him. Yeah, we did. One fact check is around plant compounds. So we looked into that. Um, Walter said we have identified less than 1% of the compounds that exist in the plant kingdom. And while technically that is correct, a more accurate statement would be that we have found less than 0.1%. Amazing. So of all of the compounds in plants, we don't know what 99.9% are. Pretty crazy. Uh, It's so crazy. A company Walter mentioned who's hoping to change that for us through AI is Brightseed. So they've they've already already identified identified hundreds hundreds of thousands of new compounds with their Forager software and soon will clock millions. One of note is that they've discovered a compound that is in plants, which is critical for metabolism management in humans. And so, Mason, I was going to see if you could help explain what that would mean for us. <laughs> so it took f- their forager computation one-tenth the time as traditional research to identify and isolate this compound. And the significance for humans is that it can be extracted from plants and turned into a supplement that we can take mm-hmm. for people whose metabolism has crashed for various reasons, which as we as we age, metabolism naturally goes down. So this could help us maintain healthy metabolism. Amazing. So any other takeaways? To have been such a pioneer in foods and to still be so forward looking, I think that was really amazing. Yeah. So I think we should definitely keep in touch with him to discover, you know, other amazing companies that are pushing the boundaries of science or technology and food to help create sustainable food systems. For sure. 
And one thing I really loved is his take on starting from within when thinking about sustainability. Yeah. It's kind of, it's the mostly green life ethos. Start with yourself and your health and your own habits and look for sustainable practices in those and then work out from there. Move to your home, which we'll be talking a lot, sustainability choices there, and then move on outward of your influence to your community, your work, school, et cetera, and take baby steps. Because if we all take that path, we can together create massive changes. 